Hello everyone, this is Luigi and welcome to another episode of the UBK Travel Podcast where we talk with travel experts about amazing destinations and tips and tools that any traveler can use. On today's episode, we have Elisa Klickhanger. She is a world traveler that has been featured in a variety of magazines as a woman pursuing a life of adventure. Alisa is also the founder of Women's Motorcycle Tours, a company by women for women that specializes in life exchanging experiences, offering a variety of tours throughout the United States and weekend getaways both on and off road. In the first part of this episode, we will get to know Alisa and her adventures before creating her motorcycle tour company. She quit her job and walked alone El Camino de Santiago, rode her motorcycle by herself from Connecticut to Argentina, and lived in Namibia for two years trapping leopards, just to name a few. In the second part, we will learn everything about women's motorcycle tours and the community behind it. We will also talk about the Suffrages Centennial Motorcycle Ride, a cross-country event to celebrate the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, which guaranteed and protected the women's constitutional right to vote. If you like travel stories and being inspired to live the life that you're passionate about, this episode is for you. And without further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Alisa. I hope you enjoyed this episode and thank you so much for listening. Alisa, welcome to the show. We tried to record this chat a few times, uh, but we are here. We made it happen. How are you today? <laughs> thank you so much for having me. Yeah, it's good to be here finally. Great. So why don't you start by sharing something interesting about yourself that most people don't know? The most interesting thing about myself people don't know would be that I gave up a whole life with animals and a farm to become a motorcycle traveler. Oh, wow. Tell us more about it. (laughs) (laughs) One of my dreams was to own my own property and be able to see my horses out the kitchen window. And uh, it seems like a lifetime ago now. But yeah, I, uh, I achieved that life in Connecticut. And then um, through a series of, uh, of events, one of which was I walked the Camino de Santiago, I uh, qu- quit my corporate job, walked the Camino de Santiago. And then after that sort of pivoted in my life and decided to become a motorcycle traveler. And, uh, and yeah, so reinvented myself and shed all the stuff, found homes for all of my animals. It was amazing. Just, and uh and started living on a motorcycle. Well, that's wonderful. So <laughs> you're clearly passionate about travel, especially um, when it's done on two wheels, uh, to the yeah. point that you felt you needed to write your book, uh, Boost Your Confidence Through Motorcycling, A Woman's Guide to Being Your Best Self on and off the bike. What has led you to write this book and why now? <laughs> well, um, it's not a glamorous answer to that question. <laughs> I have been pecking at writing a memoir for the past decade. 
And uh, I am a content writer. I write for a lot of motorcycle magazines and I write uh, blog posts and things for content clients, uh, all mostly motorcycle related. And um, I was working on a blog post, you know, how motorcycling boosts your confidence. And um, I was writing and writing and like a lot of writers do, I don't know if you have something on your desk for a while, you kind of go back and you edit, you go back and you, you polish and polish and add and polish and add and polish. And uh, at one point I was complaining to a girlfriend of mine. I said, oh, nobody's going to read this. It's like a book. <laughs> so and she said, well, duh. So then I had to go back and I had to, you know, uh, add more to it and create it as a book rather than just as a, as a blog post. And, um, and there you go. Suddenly I was publishing the book that I hadn't been intending to publish, but finding that I love the author's journey and love connecting with the people who read the book and, um, and find a piece of themselves in me, my story, my journey. And, uh, so yeah, after my big event this year, I will get back to writing that, that memoir, which is the book. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, that, that's very exciting. Yeah, I'm sure that nobody would have read a 95,000 words blog post. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not exactly. really an option. <laughs> exactly. But the, the book's a short, like three, four hour read. And I think it's super helpful. I've gotten a lot of positive feedback. And, uh, and I think it's true. Whenever we step outside of ourselves and step into something that we love, there is definitely a, a journey of confidence there. And especially through motorcycling where it's, uh, you know, there's a perceived, there, there's a perception that's different than the reality. And, um, and with training, you develop confidence and then that helps you that that confidence bleeds out into all other areas of your life. So yeah, it's an interesting journey. Yeah, it's an interesting journey. And your book is actually really, really good. I really enjoyed it. Um, oh, thanks. I found actually a part that I really connected with. And, um, and it, basically, it's the part where you talked about your uh, trip from Connecticut to Argentina. And mm. just to give a little bit of a background to the to the listeners, in 2009-10, you wrote solo from Connecticut to Argentina with the ultimate goal of making it all the way to Ushuaia, which yeah. is the southernmost city in the world. But then along the way, you realized that this rush, this schedule that you almost imposed on yourself was actually taking the fun out of the trip and yeah. making you feel miserable. And I love this chapter so much be, because it resonated so much with me, um, not only because I had the same feelings in my personal travel experiences in the past, but also because I see many travelers going through the same thought process, which is either I do blank or it's not going to be worth it. Do you, yeah. Why do you think we impose to ourselves these goals and the pressure that comes with it? I think part of it is oh, with the, you know, we live in the social media age. And so we watch other people's trips. And certainly that was a factor in my own um, social media wasn't nearly as strong as it is now, uh, back in 2009, 2010. But uh, I was on Adventure Rider uh, website, and I was reading about all these people who, you know, um, were traveling north to south and the correct time to leave and here's what they were doing and this is where the goal and and honestly to this day the question people most ask me when i say i rode it when i when i say i rode my motorcycle by myself 
from Connecticut to Argentina. They're like, oh, so you went to you went to Ushuaia. It's like they don't they don't stop on the fact that I traveled alone for seven months on a motorcycle, you know, fixing it myself and being, you know, solely self-responsible and doing the border crossings myself and, you know, learning about all these different cultures and all the people I met. No, the single thing they're focused on is Ushuaia. And I never even made it there. Yes. <laughs> so, so, so then it becomes my story, right? Like how do I react within that, um, that question. And uh, because I could be all ashamed, oh my God, I didn't have the perfect journey, um, you know, because I didn't make it to Ushuaia, but I had my journey. And I think that that's the point we need to remember is that every journey, you know, it's, it is the journey. It's not what's the, I actually have this thing on my desk. It's, uh, uh, it's not about the, the, the destination, it's, destination. About the yep. it's about the journey. And that's so true. I was having so much fun in Mexico, my first country after I left the United States, I was in Mexico for a month. And then one day I woke up and I was like, holy crap, I've been in Mexico for a month. I better get moving, <laughs> you know? And, <laughs> and so, uh, but I was having so much fun and, and why did I have to get moving? But again, that was a self-imposed, you know, uh, yeah, we just do that to ourselves. I think it's human nature. It's so um, true. Yeah. Can you take us back to those days? Cause uh, you know, I read the book and I hope the listeners will, will read it too. There are so many funny stories, uh, but I want to know how did you come up with this solo trip idea and what have you learned from it? <laughs> well, speaking of comparing ourselves to others, I read about a grandmother who had done the same trip. And I thought, golly, if this 65 year old woman can make this trip, well, heck, I can do that. And I had, I had just uh, come off of uh, walking the community de Santiago, which uh, really opened me up to so many cultures. And I was, you know, walking alongside of Europeans and we were blending languages and communicating, sometimes not speaking the same language. And, you know, I walked with a, a blind fellow for, uh, for a couple of days and, you know, we're all learning this like new different communication uh, and, and cultures along the way. And, um, and then when I came back to the United States, I, uh, I took a big motorcycle trip and I did meet another traveler who was actually northbound. He was coming up from Ushuaia to, uh, to the United States. And I thought again, well, gosh, if he can do it, I can do it. <laughs> so it really planted the seed for me. And did you take the uh, Camino de Santiago trip by yourself too? I did. Yeah. And I, I've actually, that, that's another book in itself, but <laughs> I, I, that's, that's book number three. Um, I, uh, I walked, I've actually walked it three times now. Three um, times? How long does yeah, it take? About five weeks. It depends, you know, you should plan five weeks. And um, actually, uh, the Camino is responsible for really changing my life because I was director of operations for an IT company. And I read about the Camino and I felt in my bones that I needed to do this thing. Like I felt with every fiber of my being and I'd never felt that before. It was a very um, unusual feeling for me. And, but the conviction was so strong that I went in and I tried to negotiate and my company just wouldn't let me. They, they said maximum three weeks and then, uh, and that's it. And I'm like, well, I, I can't walk 750 miles in three weeks. And, um, 
And so I quit. And then they offered me another position. They offered me a raise. They tried to keep me in those. And, and I felt so strongly the calling in it that I, I, I ended up leaving the company. And, you know, good thing that they did do that because otherwise it would have been just a vacation instead of this life-changing uh, opportunity for me. And yeah, some people do walk the Camino. You will, if, if you walk it, you will walk alongside many Europeans who just, you know, do it as a cheap vacation. But for me, this was really like a life-changing event. I didn't know what to expect. Um, hadn't uh, done much international travel by myself. Uh, just one, you know, trip when I was a, a teenager during that, you know, summer, summer abroad thing. And uh, yeah, so thank goodness they did. Uh, they, they did. We did have that, you know, hard edge. And I had to make that choice because then once you step off into the abyss, then you have all that space for all the new things to come in. Yeah, that is so true. It takes a lot of courage to to make this decision and give yourself permission to be yourself. It takes a lot of courage for sure. <laughs> Thank you. It's, it's funny because I don't think of it that way. I just think of it as my path, you know, my path keeps opening up. And, um, and like I said, I never felt anything as strongly as I felt that before. And so I was really paying attention to it. Great, great. So let's <laughs> let's talk about Namibia, which is, by the way, one of my favorite oh. countries. Uh, yeah. You spent two years studying and trapping leopards in Namibia. <laughs> now, I, I personally want to know everything about this part of your life because it sounds amazing and scary at the same time. I mean, how, how did you even get this job? So um, there... So, after, you know, reinventing myself as a motorcycle traveler and writing for a living, I uh, it, it it was it, I didn't have a big budget, but I still loved to travel. And um, a friend of mine had pointed me to the CoolWorks.com website, which is like cool jobs in cool places. I think was their tagline back then. They have a different one now, but it's it's always interesting jobs and. And so I would, I subscribed to their newsletter and got their emails and, and then this thing came through there, uh, biosphere expeditions was looking for, um, expedition leaders. And I thought, well, huh, I've been a motorcycle tour guide and people think that's dangerous. And so, uh, what if I just like kind of morphed those skills into, you know, beefed on my, presented my resume in such a way that, hey, I'm used to handling groups in stressful, you know, situations and keeping them safe and, um, and being super organized and I'm a traveler and I get it. So, um, so yeah, so I, I had an interview, they hired me and I worked a couple of seasons uh, in the Azores and now Biosphere Expeditions, they are a citizen science company. They help um, scientists around the world. They, they, they put together these expeditions where they get uh, citizen scientists to um, pay to come on these expeditions where they uh, do the legwork for scientists, basically. So, oh. um, so back to my story of how I got there was um, I had been working in the Azores on a whale watching project for a couple of seasons and then they needed somebody in Africa and usually 
they didn't send Americans down there because it's just so far, you know, the plane ticket is a couple thousand bucks and um, they're a volunteer, you know, do good uh, company. But they said, well, hey, uh, we'll send you if you go down for the whole five and a half months, if you lead all of the expeditions, the whole season, you know, don't go down, you know, lead one and come back uh, because they were two weeks at a time. So um, we'd, uh, yeah, so I was down there for the whole season. And what's cool about it, this project was I was working with a PhD student and she was, um, she was uh, working alongside of the, uh, the, the cheetah project there um it'll take me a second to remember the name of the project they're based out of uh of germany but um vera was the scientist i was working with and she wanted to study the um the home range of leopards on farmland and there had never been a study like this before in uh in africa because all the the um, leopards that have been studied, the, all the studies have been done in these big uh, game parks or the national parks like Atosha. So this is really significant. And, um, you know, what what the, the project ended up doing was they provided a lot of reports and a lot of data to the, um, the, the, the farm land owners. And when I say a farm, I don't mean like a farm like in the United States with 10, 20, 200 acres. I'm talking this, we, we, the, the project was based on a 15,000 hectare acre oh, wow. uh, uh, farm. It would take us, you know, two hours just to drive across the thing um, from end to end. So um, uh, what the study, what the volunteers helped do was, uh, you know, one scientist can only do so much at a time, but having all these citizen scientists being the legwork we could, um, for instance, run four traps simultaneously instead of the one because you have to check it morning and night because overnight you might get a leopard, but you also might get any other type of animal like a hyena or, a, um, you know, an anteater. Or, you know, what else did we get? We got a lot of badgers um, and uh, uh, other animals. So you, and you don't want them to be in the trap too long. So we, we had to check them first thing in the morning and then right before dark. Well, imagine, like I just said, the, the farm is you know, two hours in each direction so or from end to end. So it was impossible for her to keep open as many traps as we could with a, with a bevy of volunteers. So um, I was the interface between the scientists and the volunteers, and uh, we, we trained them up in what she needed to be done. And we trained them how to, um, to, to set the traps and to, you know, not leave our scent on them. And, you know, uh, and it was cool for the volunteers because they got to learn a lot about the, the habitat, the, the habits, and there was always the grand prize of, hey, maybe we'll catch a leopard. And then we get to be there when the scientists um, uh, um, take samples, you know, the, when it's when it's trapped, then uh, they brought a veterinarian out and they darted it and put it to sleep so they could take samples. And, uh, and that was really cool. And then everybody got to actually see the animal and see what the scientists were doing and be a part of the field. So that was really, it was really cool. And well, that is very different for sure. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And it was, you know, it was a really cool experience for me because I, I mean, I'm just this, you know, American girl that likes to <sighs> see different parts of the world and meet people. And I love animals. And so for me being in a pickup truck, uh, in the bush, every single day 
um, seeing things and seeing new things and it just, it, it just fed my soul. I would go back in a heartbeat, absolutely in a heartbeat. <laughs> well, and that was my next question, actually, what your typical day looked like. So did you wake up early in the morning at breakfast and then off you go tra trapping leopards or like, how was yeah. it? Well, we went, uh, we, so we stayed in a bush camp and, uh, there were, uh, there were cooks for us. So we'd have breakfast and, um, go out just after dawn and check the traps. And uh, we had, uh, um, two different trucks. So teams would, we, we'd, we'd split up and different teams would do different things. Some would head out for animal counts. Others would go check the traps. And, uh, if there were any errands for the camp, you know, getting butchered meat or whatever for the traps, we'd, uh, we'd, we'd break up and, and do that. But we always traveled in the bush in pairs. And so we'd go out and do our counts or whatever the, the teams were doing that day. And then, um, come back at, lunchtime and of course we had radios so if we did find something in a trap then it was just like this big you know this great thing like if you got a if you got a uh, a porcupine let's say in the trap which was quite common and, and they were huge over there by the way they're like <laughs> i don't know they're I they're know. like they're they're huge the, uh, the the quills alone probably come up to your chest i mean they're huge and uh so there were a couple of animals where the folks could um let the animals go themselves the the the, so the porcupines, for instance, they would just like dart out of the cage once they realized the door was open and they'd run for the hills. So uh, any uh, carnivores, uh, we didn't let the citizen scientists open the cages, the, the traps, because we, you know, we, we wanted to make sure that it was very safe. <laughs> they, they, were too they were too valuable. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, so we, you know, the chat, we'd have them check the trap first with, uh, with binoculars to make sure there was nothing in it. And then if there wasn't, then, then they could go up and, um, and, and clean it and tidy it up and maybe put fresh meat in it, whatever. And, uh, so yeah, so then back to camp and lunch and then in the afternoon, um, out again, doing the same type of things again now this time you know setting the traps <laughs> for the for the overnight and then back to camp at uh, uh in the afternoon sometimes we would if teams were in early we do data entry uh you know logging all the findings and what was going on um uh, oh oh and we uh the other things we were doing was setting up camera traps so we had cameras all over the farm and that was how we knew where to place <clears throat> the uh the physical traps so um yeah so sometimes we'd be setting up traps it just really depended on what the you know what the activities you know what the what the field suggested that day if we if we knew because we also had people walking around and doing uh looking for scat and looking for tracks and so you know, uh, we had a bush tracker and he would go out with the folks and we'd, we'd be looking for tracks. And so if we kept seeing tracks along a certain place, then we try to set a trap there. It was just, uh, yeah. So that was afternoon, come back in the evening. We might have a slideshow, talk, dinner, whatever, and uh, get up and do it all again. It, the, the days were quite long and quite full and sometimes very exciting <laughs> because even if, we, you know, when we did catch a leopard and probably the two years I was there, we caught maybe six oh um, wow that that gives us my very much very much context i mean just yeah. six in two years um so it's like an event when you when you catch one actually it was a lot i mean not every group got to catch one 
but uh, as the leader, I was there for every group. So that was awesome. <laughs> I, got to, I got to see them all. And then if the cheetah project folks, if they caught, because they were also running traps for cheetahs, which have very different patterns than, um, than the leopards. Um, the cheetahs, for instance, you have to put the traps near where they mark because the cheetahs, um, cheetahs only eat fresh meat, uh, fresh kills. They won't uh, go in a trap and eat uh, carrion, whereas a leopard will eat meat that's two, three days old. But after about two, three days, you need to change it. So, um, so very different, same traps, but different locations for the different animals. And so if they caught a, a cheetah, then we'd also go and we watch them as they, uh, as they um, darted it. Well, we wouldn't watch them dart it, but you know, once it was asleep, then we'd be able to come and, uh, and they'd put, it was funny because everybody, we had everybody bring their, um, their eye masks from their overnight uh, <laughs> flights. Okay. And we put them. We put them on the animals because, <laughs> you know, because because they're you know when you're when you're in under anesthesia, you 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 still have some. We didn't know how much of sense that they had, so we didn't want to totally traumatize them by having. So we talked in really hushed voices. We put the eye mask on them so they couldn't see what was going on, and um, yeah, and they take blood and hair and fecal samples and stick swabs in their ears and up their nose and. Yeah. Wow, what a job. Dirt, dirt under their nails. And, uh, <laughs> yeah, and so the scientists did that, and we just we got to watch. And then um, and they, and they usually uh, showed us some stuff, like, like how the, the, you know, some, some of the predators have retractable claws, some don't. Really cool. Yeah, and then Namibian people are just so friendly, and yeah. everywhere you go, everywhere you go. Yeah. So, have you run any motorcycle tour while in Namibia? <laughs> yeah, uh, not while I not while I was down there, but um, my the when I knew the project was coming to a close in Namibia, they were going to move. Uh, uh, the uh, Vera was getting her; she collected all of her information. She's got her PhD, and, and they were um, switching projects and going to go support somebody in southern South Africa. Um, I knew it was the project was coming to a close. So what I did was I reached out to a motorcycle. A fellow that I knew, and I said, "Hey, how do I get a motorcycle before I leave this continent? I have got to ride a motorcycle over here." And he said, "Well, where are you?" And I said, "Vintuk." And he says, "Oh my God, we're in Vintuk." So it turned out I was just able to meet up his uh, his group for a couple of days, and um, and I rode with them, and I fell in love with it, of course, because that was my two favorite things or three favorite things: travel, motorcycles, animals you know, in Namibia. So it was like, what's that four thing? So I was like in heaven and I ended up working for Renadian for, uh, after I traveled with them, he was like, wow, your project's ending. You're looking for work. Uh, you ride motorcycles, you know, Africa, Hey, will you come work for me? So that was cool. I helped with ground logistics, uh, for them for about four years. And I, uh, yeah. And so now, um, uh, because I also run my own motorcycle touring company, um, I partner with them and every couple of years I bring a group of ladies uh, to Southern Africa and we do motorcycle safari, which is really cool. That is just amazing. Really cool. And, and, oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. Oh, I just wanted to clarify that when we're with predators or somewhere where there's lions or you know, we, we are not on motorcycles. We're in the big four wheel safari trucks. <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> we get off the bikes and, and see the animals that way. And, you know, I was in Namibia actually in 2000, might be wrong year, but 2012, I think. And um, I rented one of those big Toyota Hilux with a rooftop yeah. tent. Yeah. And yeah. Uh, so my myself and my wife, we took a trip of 
15 days. And most people that haven't been there don't actually understand what riding a motorcycle in Namibia means or driving <laughs> in general. First of all, you, they drive to the left, on the left side. Because uh, yes. it's uh, it's British, right? A British way. And um, although there is a lot of Dutch people there too, I never actually understood that part. But um, the other part is that, yes, you do find roads and highways in the window area. But once you start going up to Etosha Parks or even further uh, on the Skeleton Coast or down to Sassoufle, uh in the, in the desert, in the Namib desert, those roads are just, unpaved so it is not and it's very very easy to get a flat tire i mean how did you manage that uh well with the motorcycle tour we have a guide in the front that everyone follows so they don't get lost and uh and then there's a support truck that follows in the back uh, behind the group and so that usually has a couple of motorcycles on it it carries everybody's luggage it has air con in case um you know, somebody isn't up to the heat. Uh, we try to go in the season where it's not so hot, but it can, you know, it can, it's, it's, it's desert and a lot of Namibia is high desert. So that means cold at night, you know, very warm during the day. Yes. And, uh, if you're not in the rainy season, that's pretty much what it is. So, um, yeah. So with the support vehicle, we, we, we've got parts that we can take off of the other bikes. We have extra tires and tubes and all that stuff. And luckily the, the, that's what you pay. That's what people pay for, that, that service uh, is what they pay for on a, on a tour like that. You know, we have uh, my motorcycle touring company has more DIY tours in the United States, but we get it. You know, we can go to a motorcycle shop and yes. get a, get a tube and things like that. But in Namibia, you know, you could be five, <laughs> six, eight, ten hours from a city yep. down a dirt road. So yeah, this is this is great stuff, Alisa. So you love riding, <laughs> you love riding motorcycles, and you I clearly do. have a passion for adventures, animals, and connecting <laughs> with people. So is that why yeah. you created your company, Women's Motorcycle Tours? Yeah, I guess so. Just to keep keep on spreading the love. <laughs> I, uh, you know, I was, uh, you read my book, so you heard a little bit about my story. I was a shy housewife, uh, and I got divorced and I started riding motorcycles and, and I, I became, you know, I truly believe that motorcycles helped me become who I am today. And, um, and I think that that's available to anyone who steps out and steps into adventure. And because I prefer the two wheeled adventures, that's what I evangelize. But I think that any type of travel will really do a soul so much good in terms of learning about yourself, learning about the world around you and, um, and, and giving you a very different perspective on everything, not just your life, but the lives of others and, and how, um, uh, you know, how, if you've never traveled outside of the U S then, you know, you just, you just have no idea how similar people are. They have the same, you know, core values. They want, you know, they, 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 they appreciate family. They appreciate good food. They, they, you know, a warm place to live and love. And that should, well, (laughs) I think that should bring us all together. And, you know, through travel, we can see our similarities more than our differences so beautiful beautiful I, yeah so who, who represent your 
perfect customer, let's say your avatar, the, the person that you want to help the most? Uh, I... It's like another Alisa, maybe. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, can you ask me that again? Because yes. there was a little blip in the. Uh, oh, sorry. The uh, who, repre who represents your perfect customer? And who is basically the person that you want to help the most with women's motorcycles tour? Um, somebody, well, it depends on which tours. So, you know, the, the, the United States tours are more just like, a, a tour, um, you know, a great vacation. We, uh, the overseas tours are for adventurous people who want to uh, break outside the box. They want to see the world in a different way. They want to learn about themselves. Um, I do retreats, uh, which is more for the, the inner adventure. You know, we're, we're doing an outer adventure, but we're also looking inwards and seeing how that's transforming us um, as as we change in the world around us. Um, so I guess it's uh, it's people who who want to um, take a peek outside the box and um, build some confidence. Uh, we are community builders, so we want to provide a framework for people who um, who are, are, are looking for connection, looking for understanding, looking for um, freedom. Nice, very nice. From and no, that was great. Can, can, you tell okay. us, can you tell us more about the um, different types of itineraries? Now, let, let, let's stay in the US, for example. Oh, uh, okay. What kind of itineraries you create for your clients? Do they ask for this itinerary or you put it together and they reach out and book it with you? How does it work? Uh, both ways. I can lead private tours. And as a matter of fact, I've, I've worked with some ladies one-on-one uh, -on -one who want to um, just, they, they, they want to develop confidence touring on their own. Uh, and so they'll hire me to help them plan a trip and we'll do the trip together. And that way they really get the, the, the meat of, of the experience, but they still have a guide, you know, you still have a uh, backup and, uh, and that's cool for them because they get to see the world through my eyes, which is a very different experience than seeing it through their own eyes. Um, and that's led me to, I also have uh, what I call a teaching tour where, where we do a whole group like that. It's a pre-planned itinerary, but uh, that's specifically marketed to people, women who, because it's women's motorcycle tours, um, women who want to, uh, again, gain confidence, uh, touring, learn, what it's like to put a trip together. And so we do all that together in a group. Uh, and then I have uh, some other itineraries that are just, you know, I, I put the itinerary out there and uh, whoever signs up, signs up. And I also do custom tours. Beautiful. Great. Yeah. Yeah. So I know that you have an upcoming event, um, which is the Suffrages Centennial Motorcycle Ride. Yeah. And, uh, I, I'm not going to mention anything. Can you tell us everything about this event? <laughs> because I did a lot of research, so I don't want to just, you know, I just want you to explain it. Uh, yeah. uh, everything about this event, the story behind it, and why it's so important. Sure. Uh, thank you for asking. I, um, I love evangelizing motorcycling, and I, uh, I love bringing people together. And one of my champagne list trips was I wanted to lead a group of women across the United States on motorcycles. When I came back from 
uh, it was something that I had always wanted to do and never took the time to do myself until I quit my job, walked across Spain on the Camino. And then I came back and I thought, why am I here? I just took, you know, five weeks off to go walk across Spain. Why have I never given myself the gift of traveling coast to coast in my own country? And when I did it, I thought, oh, my heck, I need, I want to bring this opportunity to other people. And so, um, so I like taking centennial events and wrapping motorcycle events around them. So in 2016, we did a coast to coast uh, ride from east to west, uh, celebrating the first two women to ride their motorcycles across the United States, the Van Buren sisters. They went across the US in 1916. They were the first two women to ride each on their own motorcycle. And after that, I was like, great, bucket trip done. That's, you know, that's good. Check it off. It was my 50th, uh, my, my 50th year. So it was my birthday to my gift to myself. Yay. Checked it off. And then there was the letdown after a big event. And I thought, golly, I taught myself so much about being in a, a, a big, big event planner and um, bringing people together and the marketing that I learned and putting the sponsor decks together and sponsorship fulfillment and all this other stuff that I learned. Like, and I was, and I was thinking, oh, what am I gonna do with that? And then I broke my foot and uh, I was laying there with my foot above my heart for eight weeks, reading all the magazines that pile up in, in my house. And I was reading about 2020 being the 100th anniversary of women's right to vote. And I thought, ding, there you go. This is where I can put all of that knowledge. So for the last two years, I've been planning the Suffragist Centennial Motorcycle Ride. It's uh, scheduled for July 31st to August 23rd, 2020. And uh, we will be traveling west to east across the United States, three different routes, 10 different start cities, um, celebrating women's right to vote. And what's really fun about it is that through a whole coincidence of events, there was an event in the motorcycle world that made me change my event dates. And I was really sort of kicking the stones about that. And then I realized that because of that twist of fate, we were in Knoxville, Tennessee, the very day to the day, August 18th, a hundred years ago, uh, the new plan put us in Knoxville on the exact date that Tennessee signed the 19th Amendment. Now, why that's important is because in the United States, it takes 36 states uh, consensus to, to ratifying an amendment before it can be turned into law. So it, the 19th Amendment was signed in Knoxville, <clears throat> and then it went on to be signed into law by the president. So that is the exact route that our ride is taking. And it just all worked out perfectly. And so that still gives me goosebumps because um, I didn't plan it that way. It's the way that the fates made it come together. And I'm just so thrilled to be celebrating with the city of Knoxville. They have been over backwards to open their arms. And I love that town. If you've never been there, anybody you need to go to Knoxville because it's a maker city. It's a foodies city. 
It's uh, it's an arts and crafts city. It's all walkable downtown. The countryside is beautiful. There's the Great Smoky Mountain National Park nearby. It's just amazing. Go there. <laughs> <laughs> so that's my plug for Knoxville. Um, and so, yeah, so uh, July 31st to August 23rd, we'll be traveling cross country. Wow. Wow. Celebrating that's, that's women's wonderful. right to vote. That's wonderful. And the mission that you have now, just to clarify, is this yep. event just for women as well or husbands and Oh, thanks can, for asking. Can they come or? Yeah. Uh, it's a female focused event. The big events like this where we're on the road for three weeks, I don't want any woman to be without her favorite writing partner. If her favorite writing partner is a man. So yes, it's, it's open to women and men. What I do say is that men who join, they have to join with a woman. And that keeps away the weird stuff. Oh, for sure. <laughs> <laughs> so can people still book it or is it sold out? Uh, it's still available to book. Uh, you can uh, go to www.centennialride.com and pick one of the start cities and pick your package, whether you want self-guided or fully guided. You pick the experiences. And uh, so if you've got three weeks, go coast to coast. If you've got two, maybe you want to start in Sturgis or Denver and come east with us. If you've only got one week, then by all means, make it Knoxville to D.C. <clears throat> because in Washington, D.C., we're going to be ending the event. Uh, grand finale is a three-day women's motorcycle conference. And so uh, that'll be the fun stuff there just outside of D.C. in Arlington. And then we'll have a ceremonial motorcycle ride through Arlington. And, uh, oh, and then we have an outdoor event planned at the Workhouse Arts Center, which is a form of jail. It's actually where they jailed the suffragists. So there's a suffrage museum there, and it's a former jail turned into an art center now, which I think just is such a cool repurposing of a, of a building. So there's all these artist studios, and it's, a, it's an event venue, and we're going to be there on the green celebrating and uh it's gonna be a fantastic event and you don't have to ride a motorcycle to join us you can just come out and celebrate celebrate with us um uh and uh come to the grand finale dinner awesome and you talked about one week or two week or three weeks itinerary what are the inclusions or the exclusions if you want um well it depends on how you sign up so fully guided is think done for you tour service we carry your luggage we pay for your hotels and your meals except uh lunch because everybody's on their own for lunch during the riding day uh, you pay for your own gas uh self-guided you pay an event fee and uh, you can uh, we'll handle the hotel reservations for you so you don't have to call all 21 hotels because we've already got the room blocked there but um, you ride on your own during the day. You choose where you want to stop. You, <clears throat> you're not with a tour guide. Um, you can, you know, eat at McDonald's if you, if that's your fancy. You can get up at first thing in the morning and zoom to the next location, or you can get up at noon and zoom to the next location. Okay. okay. You know, you're not, you're, you're not um, tied to the group and the guide. And and even fully guided, it's it's more of a level of service. You don't have to ride with a guide, but I find that most people who do sign up for that level of service, they want to ride with a guide because the guides know uh, where the cool stuff is and they. You know, they take they take the breaks in there. They they are responsible for, you know, the group uh, dynamic and and stuff like that. And they're also in touch with the the support trailer if there is a mechanical problem. Oh, good, good. And just just I'm curious, how much do you ride per day in in the guided? Uh, 
200 to 250 miles a day. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So there's a well, there's a couple of sections in the westernmost U.S. where there's just a lack of facilities, and I think there's one day that we have a 300 mile day, but that's an easy day in the west because it's just it's highway miles and the speed limits are 70 75 okay so it's a lot and, easier than in the east yes and then just to get a general idea i know that it changes and but what is the average cost um self-guided is 995 dollars and uh depending on where you start the westernmost start you know, the longest distance with us is going to be about $7,800, $7,900 for three weeks. Oh, that's not, not, so, not bad at all. No. That's no. And I'm sure that there was a lot of work. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> to put all this yeah. together. And I mean, I worked for, I, I worked for a tour operator. So I know having, you know, locked rooms in hotels. And I mean, it's, it's a lot of work. It takes a yes. lot of, there is so many details and bits and pieces that they all have to come together and that's all of the work wow well, so, yeah and i've been working on it for two years this is this is all i've been working on <laughs> yeah. oh i'm sure it'll turn out great <laughs> it will so lisa um this is all great uh but let's say that there is a woman out there right now that is listening and maybe she's thinking you know right Elisa, easy for you i got two kids a full-time job i yep. only got 10 days vacation a year i don't even own I don't even own a motorcycle. How can I do this? What What would you say to that person? With regards to getting started motorcycling or coming on the big event with us? On a big event. Oh, yeah. Show up in DC for the three-day event. Learn about... <laughs> yeah. No excuses. That's it. <laughs> yeah, no excuses. <laughs> Bring your kids. <laughs> Bring your kids. I, I mean, because the, the camaraderie of motorcyclists is wonderful. Women coming together is wonderful it's a unique and distinctive flavor within the motorcycle community but motorcyclists are some of the most generous people that i know um, in terms of like giving and creating charity events and oh by the way we do have a, a, an event charity which is final salute inc which uh helps support homeless female veterans and you never hear about the homeless female veterans, right? You always hear about the, the guys and True. Uh, wounded warrior and all that. We never stop to think about the homeless female veterans. And so every registration, whether you sign up for a dinner, for a day ride, for a week, two weeks, three weeks, every registration on my ride nets a donation to them. The bigger the, the price tag, uh, the, the bigger the donation. <clears throat> Well, that's beautiful. So, oh, yeah. So, so I'm sorry to interrupt you. No. Uh, who, who, if you think you can't do it, just do it. Book the weekend, come for the weekend, uh, you know, pack all your kids in one room, come enjoy <laughs> the motorcycle flavors, watch, watch, watch the women come talk. There's no better place to learn about motorcycling and the motorcycle lifestyle than at one of my events because everybody's so open and so happy and we're there in celebration so you'll you'll get to learn so much and that's why we have the 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 conference at the end because it's educational seminars and we can hook you up with a place to go and get your motorcycle uh training and get your license i think there's no better um family activity than than, than motorcycling keep your kids up the street keep them on the bikes with you in, in the woods yeah, and I'll, I'll be sure to put all this good stuff in the show notes so people can actually <laughs> click and find it easy and reach out cool. if they have any questions. So uh, cool. on that note, you mentioned women and travel. Uh, I really actually love that part. What is, as a woman, what is the social stigma 
that society needs to get over when it comes to, we- to when it comes to women and travel. Hmm. I'm I'm not sure that there is so much of a stigma anymore. I certainly think it's going away. There's so many women traveling the world on their own, uh, you know, on motorbikes, on cruise ships, on trains, planes, automobiles with backpacks. Um, certainly see a lot of solo women walk in the Camino de Santiago. Um, I think it's more an individual thing. It's, uh, I think the stigma comes from within to tell you the truth. Oh, I could never do that. You know, it's, it's more what we think about ourselves and our own personal capabilities. But honestly, there's so many um, women owned uh, travel agencies uh, and travel uh, tour companies focused on women these days that uh, even if you are a solo traveler and you don't want to travel solo, there's a place, there's a trip for you out there. Great, great. So, okay, now it's time for some rapid fire questions. Are you ready? Uh oh. <laughs> I'll try. <laughs> First motorcycle that you purchased a Kawasaki 440 LTD. Number of bikes that you own today. Today, one, two, three. <laughs> Best day on your motorcycle. Oh, that one's tough. Oh, yep. Uh, riding in, uh, that's tough. Um, oh, I've got it. Uh, riding in Namibia down a dirt road and this couple uh, also on the tour, they pull up next to me on the right and uh they keep pointing at me and i'm looking at my bike i look down at my bike there's nothing wrong with it i look over at them they point at me again i'm like i look down at the bike again i'm saying oh my god what's wrong with my bike so i start slowing down then i look at them again they point to me again and then i look left and there's a giraffe that is it's a bull giraffe and he i guess we the motorcycle noise has scared him up and he's pacing me he's but he's just behind me and he's galloping in their awkward sort of gallop and i just I just completely roll off the throttle. My mouth hangs wide open and I'm just watching this magnificent animal running alongside of me, maybe 20 meters away. And then he just sort of veers off further and further left and disappears. And meanwhile, I just sort of slowly roll to a stop on my motorcycle. Tears are streaming down my cheeks because I've never had all my time in Namibia, all the, time in the truck and counting animals and elephant encounters i've never had anything that beautiful and spectacular so that was it wow worst day on your motorcycle oh um yeah um make that 11 straight days of rain riding to alaska and (laughs) it was never any warmer than 40 degrees and after about day three my waterproof gear just wasn't waterproof anymore we were camping and the camping gear was wet the sleeping bag was wet my motorcycle clothes were wet the inside of my helmet was wet my motorcycle was wet like i just (laughs) yeah that was the worst oh i believe it (laughs) (laughs) uh what's your favorite place you've been on a motorcycle or ever? Um, ever back of the back of a safari truck anywhere in southern africa okay if you could have a free round trip flight anywhere in the world where would you go and why Hmm. bali because i've never been there and it's bali bali okay (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> yeah. Favorite phone app that you use during your travel? Um, favorite phone app? Uh, Maps.me has gotten me out of a lot of jams. Maps. Navigational jam. Okay. Maps.me, especially when I was I was traveling around the Balkans by myself for five weeks and like I brought a map, but the map was in English and the street signs were in Cyrillic. And I was like, I can't make any sense of this and I don't speak the language. So Maps.me saved my patootie. Awesome. Outside of the norm, like passports and those sorts of things, what is one item that you couldn't travel without? Water bottle. Water bottle. Great. <laughs> I love it. It's actually very, very true and simple. <laughs> and throughout your travels, what was the best thing that you ever witnessed? Uh, besides the giraffe story, it, it, can, it can be the giraffe actually, because I don't think I don't think anything would be better than that. I mean, I uh, uh, I'll give you one other thing. Uh, at the end of my trip, uh, motorcycle trip down to Argentina in uh, in Buenos Aires, there's a um, there's a zoo where they do a very interesting thing. It's not okay. I, I know the animal conservationists. I've learned since I was there. I've learned a lot about animal conservation. I don't believe in it anymore, but it was a really cool experience. There's a zoo down there that. Um, uh, raises baby tigers with female dogs and the female, they have to be alpha bitches, but the alpha dogs teach the, um, the tigers not to be, not to be, um, heavy handed. They, they teach them to be gentle because, you know, the, the alpha dog, you know, when the, when the tiger is very young, it is very teachable. And so what ends up happening is that these tiger, you know, they're obviously raising them for, um, they're, for, they're, they're orphaned and stuff. And they, um, and people can go and pet them is what I'm getting to. And so I was able, I have a picture of myself like in this straw nest with curled up with a tiger and it was just awesome it was just it was just awesome but i i get the whole con now that i've worked in conservation after that i get why that's a really bad thing so maybe we can just delete that and you can ask me again i don't know <laughs> no, leave it no, in no, but... no 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 you know <laughs> you know we, we also change during you know during our life so what what we, we like you know what, what i like 10 years ago is not necessarily something that i agree yeah. with today so it's totally okay well lisa i i know yeah. my audience is going to love these episodes and the great stories and the information that you shared with us is there okay. something else that we didn't discuss that you would like to add mm. you mentioned before an event on online event uh, oh oh yes i um i've starting a series of online motorcycle conferences so anyone who wants to learn about motorcycling uh, maybe you don't have your license yet you can look us up at uh slash conference and you can attend the online conference it's super cheap it's 20 bucks and you can see other faces just like your own that are women just like us who uh, who just happen to love motorcycles and there'll be a lot of women talking about you know the transformative experience on two wheels and uh if anyone has got a yen to learn how to motorcycle i do offer a vip um learn to 
learn to ride motorcycles um, with me. We can help you get your license. We can provide mentoring, training, the mindset and all that stuff. You just have to reach out. And I do have a Facebook group too. It's a motorcycle confidence and exploration Facebook group. So you can join that if you're thinking about getting your license. Um, but it's all at womensmotorcycletours.com. Wonderful. That's awesome. And as a guest on my show, you get to ask the question of the day. Um, and it can really be anything. It doesn't even have to be about travel or about motorcycle. You decide. What is your question to the audience? My question to the audience is... Hmm. Is anyone else like me and your list keeps growing as you get older instead of shrinking of all the places you want to go and do and things you want to see and people you want to meet? It's, <laughs> the list just keeps getting longer. It doesn't get shorter at all. <laughs> when you take one out, you put five in, right? <laughs> exactly. Is anyone else like that? <laughs> I love it. So, Lisa, before we wrap up, how can people learn more about you, more about your new book and, of course, your tour company? Oh, it's all on womensmotorcycletours.com. There's no apostrophe in the women's, so it's just womensmotorcycletours.com. Wonderful. Alisa, it's been such a pleasure to talk with you today. I really look forward to having you back on, uh, on my show in the future. So <laughs> maybe we can talk uh, after your centennial ride, uh, see what's new in your company. Uh, thank you again. I really appreciate you taking yeah. the time today. Yeah, thank you. It's been so much fun. I'm glad we connected and uh, it's just great chatting with you. I love love sharing travel stories and you know rubbing elbows with other travelers. Thanks so much. <laughs> And that was Aliza Klikanger. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I know that there are a million podcasts out there and I really appreciate you spending an hour of your time with me today. For links and everything that we discussed in this episode, check out the show notes at doyouak.com forward slash podcast. Also, don't forget to reply to Aliza's question, which is, does your list of what you want to do and see get longer as you get older? And you can do so going on Instagram at doyouak. If you enjoyed this episode, please consider subscribing, sharing it with a friend, or give it a review. Until next time, keep traveling your mind, stay safe, and have fun.